Bill. If I haven't had the uh, privilege of meeting you yet and you are new, um, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here. I might crash the coffee party as well. So I might be back there. So come and uh, talk to me as well. I'd love to, to meet you back there. But it is uh, an honor to start a new series, just a three-week series, Reasonable Doubt. I want to open with these words of the 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, this is profound because right now we all have current beliefs about God. We have questions, we have doubts, we have things that we are wrestling with, and some of us, that might even just be unbelief in God. But that's still a set of beliefs. That's what comes into your mind when you think about God, and that actually sets the course of the rest of our life. How we answer the question about who God is and whether there is a God actually determines all the other building blocks of our worldview. It determines how we think about origins, where we're coming from. It determines how we think about our purpose, why we, why we hear. It determines how we think about our identity, who am I? And it also determines how we think about the future destiny of all things that are matter or the cosmos altogether. In other words, everyone is a theologian. I know sometimes we only think about theologians with like twisty mustaches and lots of leather-bound books. But we are all theologians, meaning we all have beliefs or unbelief about God. And we're on this kind of lifelong pilgrimage, this journey, as we look at our beliefs and test them out in the real stuff of life. This series is going to look at that. Now, we're not going to be able to get into a ton of specific scientific or philosophical issues and do a deep dive on kind of apologetics, if anybody you knows what that is. But instead, we're going to be looking specifically at the relationship between faith and doubt, the relationship between belief and our life. We want to just create space throughout these series to examine what we currently believe, but also to doubt some of our doubts to actually question some of the things that maybe we haven't stopped long enough to think about. And we at Springville, we want to also create space. Like, this is not the only time that we talk about this, right? We want to create sp space that we can ask good questions and lean in as a learning community and explore some of the complex things about faith, doubt, and our lives. So, I don't know where you are today on the topic of faith and doubt. And that's probably why I've struggled with this series as deeply as I have. But my guess is that some of us are very hungry and encouraged in our faith right now. Others of us here, we don't even know where we really are on Jesus. We're kind of curious. We're, we're trying to move towards figuring out where we even land on things around faith. Others of us, we might be entirely closed right now in this season of our life to faith at all. And even others of us might be in a point of disillusionment or disappointment with our Christian faith. Maybe we have church hurt. Or maybe we're walking through, as Ashley said, certain battles right now and we don't know what to do with our faith. Not all doubt is created equally. And so each of us have these things. Each of us have these question marks that we're walking through the complexity of this. And I want to give us space to think about that. But specifically, I want to give us space to think honestly about that. 
to actually take our doubts and our questions and the tensions that we feel and not allow that to feel like a lack of faith or an absence of faith, but instead move towards God with our doubts and our questions. Now, I gotta be honest, discussions around faith and doubt are stranger than they used to be. We've got a lot of things working against us when it comes to just having honest dialogue about things. The digital age does not help, right? Just sound bites and hot takes everywhere on everything doesn't really create a good environment for, t- for us to think slowly and deeply about things. I saw a Barna study recently that said that two of three people who identify as Christians, that's people who have already committed and said, I'm a believer, I'm following Jesus, struggle with real doubts regularly. Millennials experience doubt twice as much as other generations when compared And Gen Z, or the Zoomers, that would be 11-year-olds to 27-year-olds, are considered to be the least Christian generation in North American history, mainly because of complexities around questions and doubts. And not just logical questions and doubts, but moral and personal and emotional challenges around their faith. This is very complex. The digital age doesn't help, but also... Nor does expressive individualism, that, that we really, we, we look inwards to become the authority of what is right and true or not true. It also doesn't help that church attendance, spaces like this, are actually at an all-time low, while interest in spiritual things is at an all-time high. And last, it doesn't help that we are great-great-great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment, If you remember anything from history class, most of us don't, we've been on this like three or four hundred year journey of rationalism and scientific discovery. And what that's done is it's left us with a very hyper-rational view of the world, but also it's kind of given us the baggage where we're suspicious of all things that don't fit in a test tube. You with me on that? And this hovers around in our culture in lots of different ways. It's kind of caught in sound bites on TikTok and YouTube, where it's the assumption that science is about thinking, reason, evidence, and facts, but faith is not that, right? Anybody kind of heard this or felt this tension? That faith is actually about ignoring evidence and just blindly trusting and walking into the oblivion, right? This baggage that kind of floats around in our culture is captured in lots of different ways. My favorite is the physicist Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist, said this, faith is like a mental illness. He seems nice. (laughs) The great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think. And you're like, ooh, ah, if it is, we're in trouble, right? As a faith community, but is that true? I mean, that that makes for really good cultural clickbait. It does. It sounds provocative. But it's not intellectually honest or historically in touch with anything about the Christian faith or even what we know about reason and science itself. Some of the most renowned thinkers of history, like Galileo, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Florence Nightingale, who single-handedly revolutionized nursing in the 1800s, Francis Collin, who discovered the human genome. K. 
Katherine Johnson, the mathematician who worked with NASA, she's featured in the movie Hidden Figures. We're all people of faith. So how can we say that faith is about avoiding evidence or sidestepping evidence when some of the most renowned contributors to the conversation around how the universe works also were people of faith? Between 1901 and the year 2000, 60% of Nobel Peace Prize winners were Christians. So it's not intellectually honest to say what people like Richard Dawkins says. The evidence actually seems to point in the opposite direction of the secular voice on that topic. The belief that the Christian faith and science or logic are incompatible comes only from a misunderstanding of what Christianity is or a misunderstanding of what science is. So that leaves us in an interesting place to kind of have this relationship between faith and doubt. But as Christians in the worshiping community right here, we also have the added tension that biblically there appears to be some biblical challenges around how we understand faith and doubt. So when we read verses like James 1.6 that says, let the person who is praying ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You pause and you go, wait, it kind of sounds like faith and doubt are opposites. Or when Jesus in Matthew 14 says to his disciples, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? That also seems to kind of pit doubt against faith. It kind of allows us to, to think, well, maybe faith is the absent of all doubts. Maybe that's the goal. But in a closer look of some of the challenging passages, doubt here in these verses isn't the opposite of faith or telling us to not honestly wrestle with uncertainty or questions. But the Greek word is actually wavering. It's being double-minded. It's sitting in a place of hesitance. Not going any direction is the wrong direction. Amen? That's what that kind of doubt is here. So I want to look specifically at a couple things today to set us up for this series, to kind of tee us up. Next week, we're going to have some fun because Ashley's going to be here and our brain is probably going to bleed a little bit, right? Because he's going to do some work philosophically, but also about the historical Jesus. And then in week three of the series, we're going to finish with probably one of my favorite disciples, and that is Thomas, who has been given the title, unfortunately, as Doubting Thomas, but I call him Believing Thomas, and we're going to look at him in two weeks. But first, I want us to spend some time looking at the very last words that Jesus said to his disciples. In Matthew 28, we call this the Great Commission. Watch this. Resurrected Jesus comes and stands in front of his disciples. The verses say this. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had told them to go. That's a good start. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Pause. And revival broke out. And we sang by and by, and the heavens just dropped down to the earth, and everything was amazing forever. No. They worshipped, but some doubted. Some doubted. Now, don't miss how wild this is. They are standing, staring at the resurrected Jesus, okay? This is the evidence that the entire Christian faith rests on. 
This is like the thing that if you can just get rid of the resurrection, Christianity is gone. And they're standing there staring at the resurrected Jesus, just like he told them he would do at the exact spot that he told them to meet him. And they're going, ah, I don't know. Now, we can kind of rag on them a bit, but listen, just like today, in the first century, the death rate hovered around 100%. (laughs) Meaning, when people died, they stayed dead. So let's not be too hard on them that they are staring at the evidence that validates the entire Christian faith. And they're just going... I see this. I just don't know what to do with this. And Jesus' response is not, oh, you, you there, you're doubting? Excommunication. Get hell. Hell for you, right? Like, <laughs> like, like he, he's, Jesus' posture towards doubting, his posture towards doubters is that then he takes that whole group of worshipers and doubters and then he tells them, now let's take all of that and go out into the world and make disciples just like you. That's wild. He doesn't kick the doubters out and go, hey, true worshipers, those who don't have questions, you stick around. Everybody else, get out of here. He takes this kind of diverse group of worshipers and doubters, those who are faithfully walking into doubt, trying to wrestle with the real questions because they know that truth is worth it. And he takes that group, sends them out, and Springville, the world has never been the same. We are sitting here because a group of worshipers and doubters went out into the ends of the world. And here we are halfway around the world, still sitting going, man... I'm worshiping, but sometimes I'm doubting. Now, here's what's interesting. Sometimes we think, if only I had more evidence, I would believe more. They had all the evidence in the world, and it doesn't lead them to believing faith. I've sat with people, if I said, and I've said to them, if I could prove without, without any doubt, with absolute certainty that Christianity is true, would you follow Jesus? And they've said, no. Do you know why? Because all the evidence in the world doesn't change the bent of the human heart to come up with a different explanation of the evidence that doesn't give our creator glory. Amen? So faith is way more than just, well, if only I had certainty of knowledge crammed into my head. And I was super, my three and a half pound brain was just saturated with knowledge. If only. But that's not how the Bible speaks about faith. Faith is far more complex than that. It's far more about the whole person. Yes, it's about knowledge. Yes, it's about reason. There are beautiful evidences to the truthfulness of Christianity. However, faith also involves our affections and our wills and our desires. We need a change of heart. So we have a group here that worship and doubt. They're worshiping and they're doubting. Now this is us. This is a picture of us. All of us are worshipers. I know sometimes we just think worship is just what we did, like, mm, right? But, but worship is more than that. It's not even a religious concept. The Bible talks about worship not as a religious activity for religious people, But that worship is actually what you decide to give your life to. 
It sets your purpose and your identity. You decide whatever that end is, that's worthy worship of me giving my life to. That's worship. So there's no such thing as those who worship and those who don't. If you're here right now and you are not in on Jesus at all, you worship every single day. You give your life to some end that promises to satisfy you. That's the object of your your worship. And our lives are shaped by what we give ourselves to. Our worship determines where we put our faith. So if we're honest with ourselves and we start to look at our day-to-day life and we think, man, what am I giving my life to? What am I living for? What do I think will give me value and worth? Quickly, you will find where your faith rests. Are you with me on that? I know it's a little philosophical, but stay with me. That's really important. Everyone puts their confidence and their faith in and their trust in something. That's how scripture speaks about faith. Both the Hebrew in the Old Testament and the Greek in the New Testament convey not just kind of like theological or logical knowledge in our head, but it's a trust and a confidence in or a reliance on something that you've been persuaded by. An important dimension of faith that we see is that faith is believing But it's also different than just believing. Faith is not only believing. Faith is also living in light of something being true. Amen? So you got to ask, what do I look to to give me meaning? What makes life worth living? Or maybe where am I disappointed right now and feeling like I'm not even able to identify value and hope? I don't even know what to trust to give my life to right now. I don't even know. Right there, there's a worship gap. There's a faith gap. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as confidence in what's hoped for. Did you catch that? Faith is confidence in what's hoped for, which means what we look to for hope casts a shadow back and determines our faith. We put our faith where we put our hope. We put our faith where we worship. We believe what we believe because we trust it will give us life. And Jesus gathers this ragtag group of worshipers and doubters who have real faith, yet real doubts, and he sends them out to change the world. I love that. That should mean that the church should be the safest place to wrestle with faith, amen? Like this should be the safest place. No insecurity about it. Right? There's nothing you can't ask. There's nothing we can't talk about. There's nothing off the table. This should be the safest place for all ages to wrestle with, yes, the reasons for faith, but also the complexities of the emotional and personal experience of faith. Should be. Scottish theologian Oswald Chambers nails this. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man, a person is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. I love that. Because sometimes we think about doubts as the absence of faith rather than doubts being the way that I'm actually taking my faith serious enough to ask questions about it. You with me on that? Sometimes doubting doesn't mean a lack of faith. Sometimes it's that we're just starting to get serious about our faith. Sometimes doubts and questions are actually just, we're buffering. We're just just buffering. We're just thinking. 
And sometimes, and this is where we've gone off, sometimes we can catch people in a moment in their journey and make it a comprehensive kind of portrait of who that person is rather than seeing maybe sometimes we're just in a season where we're buffering, we're wrestling, we're working through the complexities of life and faith and doubt and God. But we want to create space for that. Now, here's two temptations in this conversation. As we look at Jesus' call of the Great Commission, we're looking at some worshipers and some doubters. Here's, here's where we're caught. We're caught between two extremes right now, culturally, especially within the church. The first is like a fundamentalism when it comes to faith. And fundamentalism is built kind of on the assumption that to be a good Christian means that you are just full of faith at all times. You never doubt at all. You kind of float, like you just float through life. You barely walk. Because your faith is just so amazing. And you can just shoot from the hip amazing, watertight answers at any time on any questions that ever come at you. Right? And also fundamentalism around this topic kind of leads us to feel like this weird, guilty conscience when we do have doubts. And we feel like, well, I don't even have permission or room because doubts mean it's an attack on my faith. Because after all, the Bible says that I believe it that settles it. Now listen, that sounds great. That sounds like faith. But let me just submit that that's actually just simplistic faith. That's an unexamined faith. That's an unquestioned faith. And let me tell you, that kind of faith is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. You go to a first-year biblical literature, uh, a lit class, listen to some podcast with Richard Dawkins, jump on TikTok and listen to one 20-second video that ends with, so what are you going to do with that, Christians? And all of a sudden, your, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, doesn't really hold you up, amen? I can't tell you the amount of young people especially that have not been given permission to wrestle with the reality of their faith. They've inherited a faith, a simplistic one at that, and then they get out into the real world and I have no idea how to hold on to it. That's what fundamentalism on faith does. But equally dangerous, I think there's a progressivism. There's a progressive kind of understanding of faith. This is where you'll hear about kind of the deconstruction crowd, where there's lots of spicy takes on the internet, especially on TikTok, of people who have deconstructed or deconverted, or you'll hear the word exvangelical. That someone says they're an ex-evangelical, meaning they are an ex-evangelical. Now, there is room for deconstructing our beliefs. We, we should, we must pull our faith apart and put it back together. But the deconstruction and kind of progressive crowd is not looking at a virtue of pulling things apart and being honest. The virtue itself is questioning everything to the point where you're left with nothing. And it's also not honest because... If you're walking away from one set of beliefs, if you are uh, deconverting from one set of beliefs, guess what you're doing? You're converting to another set of beliefs. There's no such thing as non-belief. You with me on that? To believe set A of beliefs is to not believe set B of beliefs. And so in the progressive kind of conversation around this, it's not honest about the new beliefs that we're walking into. You can't deconvert from something and not convert to something else. 
So some of you, you might have felt that tension of either the fundamentalist kind of pressure or the progressive lean of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm really insecure about my faith. But here's where this has left us. Fundamentalism demonizes doubt and progressivism glorifies doubt. Neither of them, I don't think, takes faith or doubt serious enough. And so we want to do that. We want to strike a balance where we're asking honest, good questions about the faith. And we're taking it serious enough that we would actually see some of our doubts and our questions not as something that is a threat to our faith, but the very thing that could anchor us deeper in our understanding of it. So it's not only possible to have doubts and love God with our whole heart, but I, I think it's actually healthy. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says it better than I can, so this is what you do to sound smart. You quote smart people. Ready? A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. I think he's exactly right. Some of us haven't even allowed those antibodies into the working of our faith yet. Others of us haven't even thought critically about alternative worldviews that we're converting into and away from faith. And that kind of touches on the rational side, but I want to just end our time and look at one of the most neglected parts of this conversation. My guess is that the majority of us, some of us love, some of us are nerds and want to sit with Ashley for six hours until our brain bleeds, and that's your jam. That's awesome. My guess is, though, that most of us, that's really not even where most of our doubts come from. But most of our doubts are either emotional, that we've actually walked through something, or we've seen hard things, or we've gone through suffering, or we have moral struggles with the Bible and Christian faith and our culture today. And we don't know emotionally how to work through those. These are called emotional doubts. And often from this conversation, you start to get into just rational evidences for the faith, but you miss the biological and neurological fact that although we are thinking beings and we are reasoning beings, that fundamentally we are emotional beings. You remember the Myers-Briggs, right? That was like, well, you're thinking or you're feeling. No, no, we're, we're definitely both. And some of the most recent research around just the human person is that you and I actually feel our way through life far more than we think our way through it. Even the most Spock-like of you right here are like, nope, I'm a thinker. You're not. You think more than other people, but what we're seeing, there's a study at Harvard that showed specifically when faced with stress, suffering, hardship, or challenges, people almost always respond emotionally before they respond with reason. We reason about our feelings. That's how we work. 
My favorite example of this is by a psychologist called Jonathan Haidt. And he has a metaphor about an elephant and a rider. Who has heard this metaphor? Amazing. One of us, two of us. Great. Guys, we're going to learn something. This is great. Okay, throw a picture up there of an elephant and a rider. And here's what he says. The rider represents our reason and our logic. And the elephant represents our emotions, our affections, our, our will. And although, looking at that picture, it looks like the rider is in control, if there's any disagreement between the little bitty rider and the six-ton elephant about which way they want to go, guess who's winning every single time? Well, the elephant, of course. But the rider's on top. So the rider looks like the boss, right? Logic is going to rule over emotion. Uh, the rider's got the reins, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion because the elephant at any time can take the direction that he pleases and the rider can do almost nothing about it. And Jonathan Haidt summarizes all of his research and he says, intuitions come first and strategic reasoning second. And here's why this is true. We've all experienced times in our life when the elephant has overpowered the rider. Amen? We all have. Every time you've slept in or overeaten or texted your ex at midnight or skipped to the gym or tried to quit smoking and failed or procrastinated on anything, guess what? You know what's right. <laughs> but your elephant has overpowered your rider. Which means that our beliefs... Our values, our daily decisions are shaped most, not by what we think, although that plays a part, but instead by what we want. And church, this for us is one of the biggest barriers to our faith for some of us. It's not just our beliefs. We know what's right. We're settled on some of our beliefs, but we want something different, and that's where we wrestle. It's in our emotional doubts that we struggle with the most. New York Times columnist Julianne Barnes, who's an atheist, once said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think there's some honesty there. That there's a yearning for transcendence. There's a yearning to connect with the glory of the creator that we are made in the image of. And our beliefs can deceive us, and we can say things like, I don't believe in God, but I, I miss him. And if we're honest, when our head hits the pillow at night and we're left alone with our thoughts, sometimes the biggest struggle is that not in our beliefs, but it's in our wants, it's our desires. My favorite atheist, sounds weird, right? My favorite atheist on this is Thomas Nagel. He's a philosopher and an atheist in the States. Here's what he said about his atheism. And this is just honest intellectual atheism. This is why it's good. A lot of it's dishonest. Watch this. I want atheism to be true. Did you see that? From a philosopher. I want atheism to be true. Listen to this. Because I'm made uneasy by the fact that most of the, some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I actually hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. Woo! 
That's a doozy. That preaches. Thomas Nagel, by accident, just preached. I love that. Because when we get honest about our intellectual doubts and our questions, it will really come down to the human heart having a cosmic authority problem. And this is where Jesus always pushes conversations about faith. He pushes people past just what they're thinking or believing to what they want more than anything. And he says, what do you want and why do you want it? And that's where I'll meet you. I'll meet you in there. So listen, if your doubts about Christianity stem from desires that conflict, that's not a belief issue. That's a heart issue. But here's the good news. Proverbs 3.5 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That we can actually have our heart be transformed and that we can honestly, freely walk towards questions and doubts that we're having, but do it as worshipers that our heart would be so changed by the God who can change it, that Jesus would invite us and say, come to me with your doubts. My favorite example of that is in Mark 9, and I'll close here, and it's the story of a desperate father whose son is racked with spiritual, mental, and physical anguish. And he comes to Jesus, and he's like, can you do anything about this? And Jesus is like, can I? Do you know who I am? You know what he says? The father responds, and he says, I believe Help my unbelief. That is a picture of the Great Commission. That is somebody who is worshiping yet doubting and saying, I believe, I'm trusting in you, but help where I'm not trusting you yet. I trust you, but I'm struggling to trust you here. I'm struggling to understand you here. I believe, help my unbelief belief. This is the invitation for us today, that we would be honest about where we are, whether we are in unbelief or we're, we're in belief but struggling or we're just killing it. Like we're just like, man, yeah, that we would be honest about where we're wrestling, what we're actually challenged with, that with the psalmist in Psalm 13, we could say, Lord, how long? Like how long will it be before I actually understand this, before I see you? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But do you know how this psalm ends? The psalm ends with David saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Some of us are in the middle of the beginning and the end of that psalm right now. And so here's what I want to do. I want to create space as we close to move towards God with our doubts to actually walk through them, whether it's personal and we're just wracked with our own shame and guilt. We need to be reminded that God loves and sees and is for us because of his goodness. Or some of us haven't actually felt permission to wrestle with some of the questions we're asking. We need to create space for that. But I want to just give us just, just a minute, just a minute where we just get still and quiet before we sing, before we pray, before we move on. And just change our heart posture so that with the psalmist, with the Father in Mark 9, with all of the disciples in the Great Commission, that we could be honest about our worship and our doubts. And we can bring them to God and move towards him with them because he is faithful. That he is the author and the perfecter of our faith for that reason.
Let's just take that time and then I'll pray for us to that end. God of heaven, sometimes it's in silence and stillness that we have our eyes directed to what might be missing in us. I just pray that this morning, as we start to think about our faith in this way, or as we continue on the journey, as we wrestle with our questions and our faith, we know that, Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can change the human heart that even with all of the evidence presented before us in a nicely packaged way, that our heart wants to come up with a different explanation. And I just pray now that you would encourage us, that you would meet each of us where we are in the wrestle, in the journey, whether they are evidences and, and rational, logical questions that we're wrestling with or haven't started to that you'd meet us there. Or emotional doubts, or just pain that we've walked through. And we need to experience your steadfast love in the midst of that. I pray that you would meet with us. We thank you that the gospel is the true story of a God who has sought us out, not waited for us to get everything in order but that you have come to us so that we might come to you. We ask that you would encourage us as we do that this morning and that we would be changed as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.